I remember in my preparation for rescue swimmer school, also looking at your programs and you had specific standards for the rescue swimmers. And I recall when I first looked at him, I was like, that's impossible. This guy's <laughs> totally unrealistic. <laughs> another episode of the rescue swimmer mindset thank you for joining us we're back so we have a very very i'd say renowned in our industry guest today we won't say who until the very end of this intro we're psyched he's knowledge in training we're going to talk about more than anything buds how to prepare for that but he's pretty well versed and in the industry about everything that's special forces or elite military training we're talking green beret talking recon he's got all those training programs out there pretty much anything you can think of yeah when when we were starting off we used his programs we looked at the knowledge he would share his articles so very good guest today uh before we do let's talk about what's up and coming for the rescue swimmer mindset cody all right so we got two big things coming up first big thing is a new program coming out it's going to be called train like a rescue swimmer so it's going to be workouts for people who actually don't want to be rescue swimmers, maybe you're a lifeguard, maybe you're a civilian and you want and you're interested in seeing how we train, this program is going to have basically a good mix of that. So it's going to be a lot of pool intensive workouts, um, a lot of calisthenics, some weights, but mostly we're going to be trying to get you in the pool, running a lot, doing stuff that we do in rescue swimmer school. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of our people that are training with us, they're not per se trying to do any elite military position, but they like the type of training that we do and it is it's great overall training to develop yourself as an athlete or just to get into shape so this is a great program if you just want to see the type of training that we do and it's tailored for those individuals but also if you're willing and wanting to do the whole military career i mean this is also going to be a great program for you yeah i'd say it'd be a good intro so our, our win the day program is for people getting ready to go off to a school this would be a program that could kind of transition you into that. So it's going to be a lot less reps, easier workouts. And then if you felt like that was easy and you just want to move on a little bit, you can get win a day after that and kind of be good to go. Great. As well as Black Friday is coming Black up. Black Friday. Black Friday. So if you want the lines, if you want to set up some tents uh, outside of the Rescue <laughs> Swimmer headquarters, that's what I would recommend. Tents are starting to go up three days before. Bring, you know, warm blankets and things because, you know, it's in Northern California. It gets cold at night. So I'm kidding. We are all online. So if you want to get our programs, all our programs, that's win a day. That's hold your breath like a helicopter rescue swimmer. That's become the expert. Yeah. Train like a rescue swimmer. The 1.5 mile run program. All our programs for Black Friday will be, drum roll, what are we going with? 30% week, 40%? That's for fucking losers. <laughs> We're going with 50%. You got 50% off on Black Friday. So go to the rescueswimmermindset.com. And when are we starting that, Cody? All of Black Friday. So okay. the full 24 hours. We'll start it off West Coast time, midnight, the prior morning, and then go to the midnight on you know Friday night. Black Friday, 50% off rescue swimmer mindset. Without further ado, our guest today, Stu Smith. Hey, thanks, Cody. I first discovered you, I think like in 2010, when I was trying to be a rescue swimmer in the Coast Guard and I was looking up training programs and all that stuff. And your program, you had a rescue swimmer program. I think it's, you know, Navy, Coast Guard, rescue swimmer. Yep. Training program. I ended up buying that 
and went through it and it was awesome. Freaking got oh, me cool. ready to go. And then I ended up buying your Navy SEAL prep program too, went through that and it all worked out. I ended up getting through. So appreciate the help. Well, that's awesome. You know, it, those schools are tough, man. And a lot of people, I think the reason why the attrition rate so high in those is they just aren't prepared. And quite frankly, a lot of people just don't realize how bad treading is. Like they, they so just true. think, oh yeah, treading's so easy. I could do that. And then like a minute in, they're about, they're panicking about to die. Um, yeah. And that's a tough little gut check to get over. I mean, you have to go into any treading or underwater swim or any swim PT workout or any workout for that matter and bring your A game. And that's, that's what those programs kind of help you realize that, ooh, man, if, uh, good thing I put treading into my schedule because if you if you neglect that i mean you're just asking for trouble yeah i almost we have like a back in the when i went through we had a program called an airman program so we'd go to an air station for six months and kind of prep to go to rescue summer school and this i was so bad at treading the swimmers almost didn't want to send me to a school they were like well, i don't know like you probably won't get through and i ended up like i was working on it every day for like God, four dude. months straight I ended up getting it down but brutal yes yeah <laughs> are there a lot of people that show up at buds with just a casual cavalier no big deal they have not prepared whatsoever and then they get rocked because i feel like you got to be insanely uneducated i would say half the people show up there like that really? and then yeah and then and then there's a you know because it's like a 75 percent attrition rate right sometimes 80 percent. so you get half of that group are just so unprepared because they were either overconfident in their abilities or just didn't understand the level of fitness that it required. And then there's the other, you know, 25% of that attrition rate that really shows up in really great killer shape, but then something else gets tested in there. And it's one of those intangibles about being wet and sandy, or maybe it's more load bearing activities that really kind of crush them or the obstacle course, they can't get over a certain obstacle and they fail it or just swimming and treading. And there's so many other variables that go into it. And then getting constant negative feedback. If you're one of those guys that have just never failed anything, you've just went through life, just crushing it. And you get this constant negative feedback for no reason really whatsoever. It, it messes with your head in, in ways. And so I think that might be the other you know, 25% there that show up in really good shape. And then there's the 25% that are in good shape, did some preparation and just really want it bad enough to handle all the other stresses that come with these types of training programs. When it comes to that more mental aspect, as in dealing with that negative criticism, I guess that's kind of a, almost a salesman mentality of like, you're going to get rejected. You're going to get told you're terrible is there any preparation that goes into that you think or that's more of something innate within every candidate that's a good question i i would say it's a little bit developed over your life like if you are constantly getting negative feedback as a kid whether it's from your parents or coaches or um you know, teachers or something like that. And, and it could be good negative feedback. Like I always talk about my daughter who was 15 years in ballet and she pretty much went through life, just crushing academics, could play any sport she wanted, but she did this ballet for 15 years 
And every class was constant negative feedback, because if you hold your hand this way and not like this, I mean, you just get all these different screw ups. And I think sports really allows you to get negative feedback, because if you screw up a football play or screw up some other event, you have an error in baseball. I mean, all those things are just ways to build a little more resiliency in your way of accepting failure and not getting crushed from it, but learning from it and not letting it happen again. Mm. So I think that's where it all comes into play somehow. And it's one of those intangibles that's really hard to kind of write about, which is something I try to do. And it's, it's sometimes even harder to speak about because it, it just kind of goes over people's heads. And, you know, it's one of those intangibles that's really hard to explain for me. Yeah, that is interesting. I feel like a part of my background maybe is like coming from, and sorry, mom and dad, but coming from parents that, that did tend to yell. So I wonder if that gave me the coping mechanisms to deal well in those types of environments. And interestingly, I feel like in general, even post-military, I deal well when like my friends, and if I'm challenging myself physically, if my friends are talking shit and they're they're just telling me, yeah, you're weak. And I'm, oh, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll show yeah. you. <laughs> you know what? Eventually, you know, that's a really good point because eventually you can really get some energy and some abilities that come out of nowhere by just proving someone wrong. Mm. You know, I think that was the biggest one for me. You know, I, you know, I went to the Naval Academy and you know, I was like athlete and good, good grades. And I was, I was that kid that never really failed, but you know, through sports, you build up some resiliency because you're always failing, even though you do well at the end, there's, hundreds of practices where you're failing, right? And you kind of build up some resiliency there. But I mean, I remember saying to myself when I, I was failing at the academy and everything, I mean, just failed my first PT test, was failing chemistry. You know, I was just falling apart. I mean, it's just like things weren't working. I didn't make the football team like I had planned. I mean, just everything was falling apart. And uh, I just remember finding that, fuel when the tank was empty when i realized that i can't go back home because i gotta prove this asshole wrong that told me i'd never make it through there you know so it was that those little (laughs) moments where you just like screw it i'm gonna figure this out in a sense like i i say that's almost using your ego to your benefit you know i mean there's there's flaws in ego and certainly that's something that to be worked on but sometimes you can use it to power and fuel you. And I think a lot of like phenomenal, tremendous athletes are just filled with ego and that's kind of what is their driving force. Well, yeah, true. And competing. I mean, we all grew up competing and you know, it's, I, I always talk about train to compete, you know, not just survive because I see so many people just kind of in survival mode, you know, the minimum standards are good enough, you know, you know, instead of like trying to compete to be, at the max or even better than the max or the fastest runner, the fastest swimmer, you're always trying to win something. I always tell people this, this one is really true. You never think about quitting when you think about winning. Hmm. Right. And where I came up with that, I came up with that when I ran my first and only and my last marathon (laughs) that I will ever do. (laughs) I'm ever going to do that again. That was just awful. 
but it was just boring. It was like it wasn't like they didn't kill me. It was just I was my mind. It was like I was just so bored. Um, but I just wanted to do something else. If you know, like I would go for a swim for half of those miles, I probably would have been better. I I was just wanting to get under four hours and just finish it. That was my goal, and I realized that was kind of in a survival mode mindset. And then I see these guys over here doing their dynamic stretches and, you know, high-fiving each other. And, you know, they look like they're from Kenya, you know, just skinny runners. And I was just realized something. I was like, they are trying to drop a minute off their fastest marathon ever. You know, I mean, they're, they're in a completely different mindset than I am. I, I was just in this survival mode. And then once I kind of figured that out, I was like, all right, I got to work on this and see how – I can get into that mindset for just everything that I do, not just, you know, uh, running a marathon, but for all the future activities that I have to do, you know, try to get through buds and try to get to buds and through buds and all that. Was that before or after you went to buds? That was before. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it really made a big difference because I saw it happen and it just, just sort of reaffirmed everything that I saw that day because I saw all these guys getting into buds and they were striving for the minimum standards and they got in and then, you know, we take the test and they're still shooting for the minimums, like stopping, you know, a minute and a half into the push-ups when they could have gone for 30 seconds more, but they got the minimum. So they were done. Yeah. And it was just that mindset was like, didn't make sense to me. And it was proven right time after time after time with all those guys dropping. I remember in my preparation for rescue swimmer school, also looking at your programs too, and you had specific standards for the rescue swimmers and it was significantly more than the PT standards. And I recall when I first looked at him, I was like, that's impossible. This guy's <laughs> totally unrealistic. <laughs> not a set goal. Like I don't accept this. And by the end, I was barely able to keep up like with those numbers. And then I yeah. somehow like made it through the school. But even then those numbers, I was like, Whoa. well, you know what? That, that's why I put those in there. I say, look, these aren't the Navy's or the Coast Guard scores. These are what I recommend you do. Right. Because here's why. Right. And that's that whole kind of story is like you just you got to strive for these numbers. And because there's so many other areas where, you know, while you're building up to those standards, you're definitely going to see new levels of fitness that you didn't think were possible before. And I think that is a very important part of the journey because I remember seeing guys ahead of me getting to and through buds. When I was at the Academy, there's always some, you know, classes ahead of you that were heading that way and then they made it. And I was like, okay, well they made it. I, I got, I need to be in that you know, that kind of guy's shape, but you know, if I'm going to make it through and it just kind of part of it too, is also you have to see it to believe it. You know, when you see somebody make it through there and you're like, okay, I can do this too. And now, now what did he do to do that? You know, that, that's how the journey kind of goes for most people who are successful in these jobs. It all starts from higher standards for sure. Your, uh, that restaurant program was the first time I ever did a PT pyramid and mm. these things were, were so terrible, but they really helped improve my push-ups and just PT numbers in general. Yeah, those are pretty great. You know, yep. yeah. The PT pyramid is one of my favorite workouts. I still do that. <laughs> I learned it in the 80s, and okay. I have applied it in so many different ways now with different exercises and different runs every set. And 
Some yeah. of my favorite ones now is like every set of that one ten one pyramid, you do a quarter mile run. So it's 19 Ooh. quarter miles on top of all those reps. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a great little addition to the pyramid that I've slowly tried to create over the years. Yeah. Those are perfect workouts for, especially rest of summer school. We were doing a lot of, we do PT or you're doing some sort of complex or dynamic lift and then you do sprints and they're perfect. So yeah, thanks for that. Oh yeah. Bringing it up from the eighties. That's, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say I invented it. I learned it in the, yeah, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Um, And I I wrote an article (laughs) about my first PT pyramid ever and you're right. It was horrible. Yeah. Yeah, I got to go look that that article up. (laughs) We'll link it in the show notes or something. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, as far as training and I had a couple, like a nutrition question, a big one. So in, in buds, are you allowed to take in like calories during the day or do they kind of uh, like, are you allowed to have snacks and stuff in between workouts or anything like that? Well, they don't say you need to, or they don't say you can't. Um, I did. And okay. I, I would yeah. carry every time I go to the chow hall, I would carry a Ziploc bag and I would put as much stuff in there as I could that wouldn't get squished or whatever. So it'd be like baby carrots and apple slices and honey packets and peanut butter, zip it up, put that in my pants leg. And I would carry that with me all day. And you'd see me yeah. like nibbling on something uh, <laughs> through the day. Cause you definitely need it. Even though they did feed you enough there. Um, I always found that just having a little extra blood sugar, you know, glycogen in my body that I could, you know, do those, you know, that fourth physical event of the day. You know, yeah. That, was that, you know, people could bonk on pretty easily. Yeah. In Spresso Summer School, they, there's no rule against, or I guess in Buzz, was there a rule against it? Like, would you get in no. trouble if you were snacking or something? No. no I, I don't nice. think so. I mean, I mean, there's so much time in between evolutions where you go to your locker, you know, you take, take a head call or something like that. And then you go, do a classroom and stuff and everybody's eating in the classroom. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's something, cause when I was going through summer school, I didn't really think about, you know, snacking during the day between workouts and stuff. And then re- recently I got into like marathon running and ultra running. And it's something that you have to do. You're just always drinking calories. You're keeping like, you know, you're drinking Gatorade or sugar, trying to get your glycogen levels up. Um, just snacking, like eat Snickers bar during the day, Snickers bar yeah. and stuff during the day. So it's, a, yeah, it's something I'd never thought about. And, yeah, if you're burning, like yeah. if you're burning, man, I I have no idea how many calories you burn in a day of like these type of trainings, but I would yeah. venture to say you're probably burning eight, ten thousand calories, you know, yeah, in a long, long day, easy. I mean, that that's a big caloric deficit, you know, at the end of the day, if you're not putting in that many calories at least. So yeah. Not to mention it keeps you warmer. Oh, absolutely. Those calories. So that's like something to always consider. Like even when we were, when we do like cold expeditions or whatnot, we just put like cliff bars in our sleeping bag. And if we're waking up cold, you eat that. And it's surprising how quickly that furnace is fueled again. And you're good. You're, you're warm. You're, you're, oh, absolutely. You're and to be warm nice. in the ocean because of your cliff bars. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, you know, that's what I would do too. That's a really good point. Cause I would do peanuts, peanut butter, um, things with just a lot of fat in them. You know, and that's just like you throw that into your furnace, like you said, and you're you're right. It will produce heat because that's that's exactly what your body's trying to do. Your body is is trying to survive and it will produce heat, you know, at at that when you are cold, for sure. 
would you recommend that buds candidates prepare for that cold water immersion and just dealing with it, that level of discomfort? Um, that's a tough one because it's potentially dangerous. It's kind of like doing too many underwater swims by yourself. You know, it's like, unfortunately, there are people who die every year do practicing underwater swims or breath holds, you know, going into these jobs and, you know, you can see it, you Google it. And there's always some candidate that, that dies. We, we had one at the Naval Academy this past year that died on a breath hold, just practicing. And he was, he was heading to buds. You know, he was alone. Um, well, you know, his friends were up on the top of the pool deck and he went home for Christmas leave and was up at altitude. It was just, it was just a big mess of events that occurred. And I think there might've been some drinking going on. You know, it was just one of those, it was a weird mess. And unfortunately we lost a great candidate to somebody doing a breath hold test. But that, you know, that, that story I have seen in the last 25 years of me kind of being in this coaching world is that happens more often than not. You know, I probably at least probably 20 times I've heard it in 25 years. So it's almost annually. So I try to tell people first, don't swim alone. And to answer your question, sorry, that was a long answer to this question. Um, Yeah. I mean, you can get in cold water, but it doesn't take long to get cold, even in water. That's not going to freeze you. Like if you're swimming in 70 degree water, it doesn't take very long to get cold. All you got to do is stay still for a little bit and you'll, you'll get cold. Um, and, you know, the water out at Bud's, for that matter, never gets freezing. So you don't need to practice it by being in ice water and get water down into the 30s and 40s. The water in California never goes below 55, maybe 56 in the winter. And in the summer, it gets up to a peak of maybe 69, 70. Um, so it's that 15 degree window that is that buds water temperature zone. Um, but depending on your job, you may, if you're on the East coast, you're going to be swimming in 35, 36 degree water in the winter. You know, if you're up in Alaska for sure. Uh, so that's a tough one. You know, I'd like to say, yes, you should practice some cold water thing. Like, all the guys that were surfers on the West coast did really well at buds. I mean, they were never phased by the water because they were just so used to it. So there is something to be said for, uh, getting used to the water. But once again, it's potentially deadly. You know, if you get too cold, you die, you hold your breath too long, you die. You know, so there's some skills that I try not to push too hard on candidates and, you know, you know, expose yourself, make sure, yeah, it sucks. I got to bring my A game to this and it's going to be mostly mental, but, you know, with some extra tips like fueling, you can really uh, help yourself when you are cold. There's also what I'm just thinking of is those Wim Hof methods. I haven't read the book. I'm not well versed in it by any means, but just potentially working with the breath. I'm sure, you know, these, these are things that keep you resurfacing new, new science, new methods. So I'm sure, I'm guessing, I don't know. if you Breathing, absolutely. Buds. Breathing yeah. will definitely help you through those situations too. Yeah. How absolutely. does one breathe to cope with that frigid water? <laughs> it's a d- big, deep breath and a nice, easy exhale. And when you're exhaling, you try to relax 
everything that's going on and your body's going to start shaking eventually. And you, you don't necessarily want to stop shaking because that shaking is actually producing heat for you. But if you shake for a really long time, eventually you're going to quit shaking. So there's, it's almost like you want to pace out the shaking a little bit. If that makes sense, yeah, you know, unless yeah. you can refuel, unless you can refuel. So the breathing kind of helps you relax a little bit. and You can actually control the shakes and eventually you'll start shaking again, naturally uncontrollably. And that those are just some of the first signs of, you know, hypothermia when it is an uncontrollable shake, if that makes yeah. sense. So, I mean, eventually you know, like at start, you can control your shakes. Eventually, you can't. And when it gets to that level, it's it's time to get out of the water because it's potentially dangerous. And you need to go for a run and get that body heat up, you know, and, and stay dry for a little while. That just reminded me of the, that opening scene to Lone Survivor, which is a great opening scene of just Bud's. And, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, just the Bud's candidates. And then they're like, I forget what the math equation is, but some, they just pull their candidate into the boat and they're like, what's five times 12? And he goes like, <laughs> 60. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about like pain management? Because that's one of the huge differences between rescue swimmer school and Bud's is from our understanding, Bud's candidates truly have to deal with pain management, which is something we minimally to not have to do in our school um yeah are you talking about just being under a log and boat and just i'm talking load bearing activities and all the running and i'm th i'm like talking that. more like the cake was it caking yourself in sand i forget the term you guys use when you cover yourself up oh just wet oh, like chafing and stuff getting chafed yeah. up and oh, all that. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> chafing is off um i mean i still have places in between my legs where hair won't grow because that's where it was chafed from from hell week um but uh, you know dealing with it is once again kind of takes you to those intangibles it's one of those intangibles where you know you have your fitness standards kind of down at the bottom of this pyramid and your skills and your pool skills and treading and all that's kind of down at the bottom your next level is you know some discipline you know you've built all these skills you've you've acquired some discipline that next level, it starts getting a little more intangible. You got some grit and resilience. You got some mental toughness, you know, put in there. And then that final tip top of the pyramid is a question, just a question mark that says, how bad do you want it? Right. And that has to be answered, you know, because at some point in this journey, your body and your mind will say, why are you doing this to yourself? This is just stupid, right? And um, you have to have a really good answer for that time when it occurs, because it will occur. And you just have to have a good answer for that. So once again, unfortunately, it's kind of answering a question with a question, and it's kind of one of those intangibles that are very difficult to explain, really comes down to how bad do you want this? What are you willing to endure to get through this? And you, you have to apply that day after day after day, which, you know, it beats up on you for a little bit. And there, yeah, there is pain every single day and licking your wounds at the end of the day, recovering, uh, eating right, 
you know, hydrating, getting your electrolytes, you know, all those things, you know, put that into the nutrition realm of this are, is very important to how you recover from that day and how you build the energy for the next day. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really big equation that goes into pain management and just getting from one day to the next. I remember when that question mark would come up for me, thinking and looking at the candidates that, you know, the guy next to me and just looking at them and it's kind of like a poker game. And I was like, is this guy thinking what I'm thinking? Cause he looks, he looks like he's doing all right, but there's no way he's not thinking what I'm thinking. And I, I would just think like, he's gotta be thinking what I'm thinking. And I was like, but he hasn't quit yet. So like, so it's not my turn either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sometimes you have to play little games like that in your head. Um, I used, what I used to do was when the day turned into night and we are still training that day. And let's say it's a Wednesday, right? So it's, you know, you got two more days of the week to really endure. Um, and it's a late Wednesday night and you don't see an end to this. And you're just sitting in the surf zone, just freezing, got sand in your pants and, you're cold. You're just sitting there and there's no, nothing else that you have to do, but just sit there and sing a song with your classmates and people are quitting around you left and right. Hadn't even gotten to hell week yet. <clears throat> I used to play this little game of what am I going to do when all this is done? And then I would take all of my senses and answer that question. So I'm going to walk up, you know, to my room, you know, take off all my wet clothes when I'm outside the door and let them hang and dry. And then I will, you know, walk inside, get a big glass of milk, start drinking milk and, um, you know, take a shower. And I knew that I couldn't turn on the hot water at first because it would burn too bad. So I'd start off with a cold shower, and build my way up to warm and I'd clean. And then what I was going to wear afterwards, I burned big thick socks and sweatpants and sweatshirt wear gloves because I'm so cold and uh, I'd go to bed, get under this big comforter. And I'd, I'd think about all of these things, you know, while I was just sitting there and it, as, as it took a whole lot of time for me to explain that, that's, you know, kind of the time I was eating in my head of like what I'm going to do after this is over. So it kind of gave me a little future look into this is going to end eventually. They can't, can't keep us out here forever. <clears throat> eventually this is going to be done and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm looking forward to doing this. And it was, it was just a little, little happy place, I guess that, that you kind of go to your head whenever things are sucky. That's a pretty good way of going through a sucky <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah. We have like, yeah. In our school, we usually get out like around five, I'd say, right. Vince, like five, four or five. And mm-hmm. yeah, just, we don't really have to endure like that. So it's, it's good to hear I mean, that's a little, like, you could definitely use that during underwaters or something, or if you're doing some sort of hard PT. I'm trying to think of a time you'd apply that to summer school. But there's- Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you never know. You're like, your class screws up and you just get hammered when everybody's leaving or something, and it just turns into a night evolution or, or whatever, yeah. you know. It's just yeah. little things like that happen at these type of schools. And, like, you see everybody leaving for work and you're still trading it's like oh man this kind of sucks yeah (laughs) this is a i can only describe as a douchey question but it's it's one that's always pickled both parties i think as far as far as rescue swimmers go we're always curious who's got the tougher water con portion Hmm. in their school 
And it's kind of hard because a lot of you no know, that have gone through, well, there's some people because some people have yeah. been through both. Um, but it's kind of interesting to to explore kind of the, the differences because, for example, Navy like we never have to do. I mean, I think a lot of rescue swimmers do do it like a 50 meter underwater. Uh-huh. We never have to do it. Right. It's not that's not part of the training. So on yeah. that standpoint, you know, that's that's certainly a, a skillful drill that's not asked of us but then there's also yeah, at one point i remember it was like endless sprint downs underwater back so like sprint the 25 meters right underwater and like we barely had a break and i was like man it's it's pretty rough you know oh yeah i mean those <laughs> I look i'm i'm not saying one's tougher than the other i i will say the seals do have their share of water skills that occur um, most of them i would say the toughest part of it is probably done in the diving side so when you're on scuba and stuff so the first part probably i would say isn't as hard as the rescue swimmer in fact i would say they probably get some of the drills that rescue swimmers do and they bring it to buds because we had a couple rescue swimmers that were in the buds class they didn't have a problem with you know first phase water con at all whether it was drown proofing life saving you know obviously they crushed that one um underwater knot tying uh, and then just the, the 50 meter underwater swim, which I will say this, nobody in my buds class failed that at the time we took that test. We had a hundred people in our class. We had started with 120. We'd lost 20 by the time into the first week, I think where we were taking that test and all hundred made it through. And then, you know, you fast forward six months and only 28 made it. So, you know, that is not the test that's going to make or break you. That's why I try to like say, look, don't practice this on your own. It's not that important, especially when you can pass out underwater and die for a test that nobody fails. You know, it's just one of those it's one of those things that they will teach you. And they, you know, you you can as long as you get in good cardio shape and learn the underwater stroke that is more efficient versus wasting a whole bunch of energy cranking out stroke after stroke after stroke you'll get that 50 meters pretty easily <clears throat> so but to answer your question i don't know to be honest with you i i think from every from every rescue swimmer that i talked to and that has gone to buds they said that their first phase water stuff um you know was easy at buds and then the diving just brought another level of um technique and procedures they needed to learn but at the same time i, I think um i think rescue swimmer school is definitely uh, a harder surface uh challenge how's that water surface challenge and underwater swimming yeah. versus you know scuba yeah another question i had um i think i might have heard you talk about this at some point basically the trade-off between different types of athletes so say a, say there's a senior in high school who is a football player and he wants to join the Navy right out of high school. And then you have another uh, athlete that, that runs cross country, great cross country athlete who has a leg up. And then obviously there's different types of training each would do to uh, actually prepare once they graduated and rejoin the Navy. But who do you think has a leg up initially without any pre-training or anything? Good question. For buds. For yeah. Buds, I, I would say the endurance athlete does at first, but here's the problem. Both of those athletes come into this game with some strengths and weaknesses. And the weaknesses of the football player is probably going to uh, be exposed quite 
soon when they take mile and a half runs or they take the four weekly four mile timed run or they do the two mile ocean swim every week that's going to be really challenging to build up that football player into that kind of athlete to be able to handle that kind of mileage and speed whereas the cross country guy not going to have a problem and does really well with the high rep calisthenics cuz that endurance and muscle stamina works real well so i have seen cross country guys like when they first start with us, just get crushed with PT, like pull-ups, push-ups, anything with, you know, body weight exercises at first. But in about two months, they are kicking everybody's ass and everything, and they're still running fast. However, the strength aspect that the football player brings with the deadlifts and the squats and the bench presses and the overhead presses – that's the weakness that the cross-country athlete needs to deal with, especially then that first four weeks of buds where you're dealing with logs and boats and rucks, injured man drills, fireman carries. You know, those things kind of crush the endurance athlete if they don't have some exposure to strength training. And for the football player, just drop the weights altogether and start being an endurance athlete. You know, run, swim, bike, and you know, do PT for the next six months. And <clears throat> that will probably help you tremendously with, you know, work, you know, maintaining your strength, but, you know, getting that weakness up to a level that is going to be acceptable in that type of training. Hmm. Yeah. Different paths for both for sure, but eventually they all become the same. That makes sense. I heard you talking on that podcast. Actually. Yeah. I think that was what, what, like Jeff Nichols, you guys are talking about, how it's important to start as early as possible, like say 12 years old, especially for like swimming, it just tailors you to succeed in the water and gives you that water, that natural water conditioning. That said, would you say there's like a certain age where it's arguably too late? I bring this up because I remember being in Hawaii and uh, trying to get into the whole surfing thing. And I was, I was 21 and one of the rescue swimmers was a professional surfer and it was a pretty pessimistic thing to, he said, but he said, if you haven't gotten on a surfboard or like a shortboard by the age of, I think he said about 13, then forget about ever being skillful on a shortboard. Wow. And I, yeah. And I, I remember thinking, wow, that depends how dedicated you are. I, I yeah. Think, I have to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. But Big nevertheless, <laughs> would you say there's, there's potentially a, a a cutoff or regardless if if you're gonna start your training for buds at the age of say 28 right i think maybe the cutoff is 30 do you think it's realistic and you have how about this you've never been in the water much do you think that's like a a worthy endeavor well i will tell you this i had a college football player train with me one year and his first time swimming across the pool was with me trying to do the side stroke like he had never swum across a swimming pool before in his life. Right. And, and I didn't realize why he was so happy at the end. Cause he just went beat up the water all the way across the pool. And he was just so happy. And I was, I was like, what did I said, what's going on? I was like, we need to work on this, you know, CSS, uh, get a little bit smoother. He goes, you don't understand, sir. That was my first time ever getting across the swimming pool. I was like, Holy crap. We got, we got a long way to go, but fast forward six months, he busted his ass was in the pool every single day, 
next time I saw him, he, he actually was able to swim 500 yards nonstop. And then we worked on some other conditioning and technique skills and ground proofing and stuff. And that kid is a seal today. So, and he, so he was 22, 23 years old. And first time he ever swam across a pool was 22, 23 years old. So I, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think that's necessarily the issue, but I will say this, you know, I grew up in Florida. We had a pool in the backyard. Everybody, you know, has a pool or a beach nearby and we were always swimming and, um, you know, but I never knew how to swim competitively. I never tried swimming competitively, so I never really knew how to swim, but I was comfortable in the water at a very young age. And I think if you can get that <clears throat> taken care of um, at an early age, I think your, your future in swimming is going to be uh, a positive process. Um, and then, you know, I think what you just said, you know, you want it bad enough. You're going to make it happen. And I remember trying surfing my first time. I grew up kind of skateboarding, too, as a kid. And so getting on a board wasn't that hard for me, but I wasn't really good at it either, you know, compared to the guys in the Pacific, you know, Pacific West Coast. Um, but I could get up on a board. And I preferred the long board versus the short board, but that was just me. Um, felt like I could muscle it through a little bit better versus try to be too agile and, and get, you know, through those waves like that. But anyway, yeah, I, I think, um, I think with the proper mindset, you can do it and also good instruction, you know, and not, you're not wasting a lot of time screwing up the technique. You know, you jump right into it with good technique and a good mindset. You can push through the swim workouts you know, and, and it takes time though. I, I would say it probably took him a year before he was at buds, you know, doing the buds tests. Yeah. It's pretty much the method of success is dedication and doing it with the proper direction methodology. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. No um, secrets there. Yeah. No. There's a, there's a long debate, however, like going outside of water with uh power lifting for when you're at a young age and whether or not that stunts growth. That's that's an interesting topic, and I, I'm just curious as to like your thoughts on that. Is it is it a good thing to start lifting? And it's like let's break it down into powerlifting at a young age. What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I you know what to be honest with you, I think that has been disproven in some science over the years. I think where people screw up is they, you know, aren't practicing good form, good technique while they're young, maybe not have good coaching. They get injured. They hurt themselves. I've been lifting weights since I was 12 years old, you know, where I grew up in North Florida and this was in the eighties. So, you know, science has improved leaps and bounds since then. And we, we were training with weights 13, 13 years old. Uh, Cause this is a big football town where I was from and, you know, North Florida. And I mean, we would be in eighth grade, you know, seventh, eighth grade, lifting weights, um, getting ready for high school. You know, we had freshmen, you know, bench pressing 300 pounds, you know, by the time they were freshmen. I mean, it was, they were, they were pretty strong kids. Um, but you know, I have a son who is 18 and throughout his journey, we started off with a few years of mainly focusing on calisthenics and dumbbell exercises primarily. 
some TRX. Um, he was doing some martial arts, so that kind of helped him apply those type of movements with not getting too bulky. And then once he got into high school, he started doing other things uh, like shot put, discus, and you know other sports like that, jumping, basketball. And he's a tall kid. I mean, he's four inches taller than I am. He got all the height from his mom. And uh, so he was going to be a tall, skinny kid if he didn't start lifting. So we started putting on some weight. And I'd say by 14, we never – 14 to 16, we never went above his body weight in anything. And then once he turned 16, 17, 18, we were starting to, you know, bench, squat, deadlift over his body weight. So that was just my, I think, probably just being careful with him at that age. Cause I mean, he's a tall, skinny kid. You know, there was, he couldn't do his body weight. So, I mean, it wasn't even an issue. Um, but, I didn't try to drive it too quickly, you know, until he was, until he was getting ready. And we learned all the techniques at body weight or less good form. And then he could apply it to body weight or more powerlifting, you know, when he was just a little bit older. Yep. I had a very similar journey, very skinny difficulty, even reaching my body weight. But I also recall that it, I think it's pretty fairly understood scientifically now that is it was a myth but that powerlifting would stunt your growth and i think it came down to something called like your growth plates yeah i think in like the science term it's like the epiphyseal plate or something and it's like it's that tissue at the end of your bone and yeah they were thinking like that would that would stunt that growth but then i think like recently they actually came to prove that like your bone mineral density is going to actually there's they see some benefit from that as well as like your motor your motor performance and your skills. Absolutely. So, so there's a lot of benefit in doing it. That said, like, yeah, I think you're right. If you're powerlifting max, <clears throat> big weights, young age, poor form, well, then. Yeah, you're going to hurt yourself. There's repercussions yeah, of, of that. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, what is he, like 6'3? He started working out when he was super young. So, yeah. you know, or maybe he could have been 6'7, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a big fella. <laughs> yeah. One kind of more host buds question and more of the mindset we always hear of navy seals being like the opposite of cocky and just a, a modest soul in general and you you would never know that they're a navy seal i guess my question is are there cocky navy seals oh yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> absolutely okay. um you know i think with anything uh military no matter what job you are in the military i think the military is a cross-section of society so you're going to have everything. You're going to have the confident guy, the un, you know, not so confident guy. Um, you're going to have somewhere in the middle, you know, capable and, you know, perfect, you know, attitude and everything. And, you know, it, it's a spectrum that I think uh, for the most part, most of the guys are in that, that middle zone where they're just, you know, they're confident, not cocky. Um, but you know, that's, that's in a, in a group where when you go outside that group, that confidence can be viewed as cocky, right? Like within a group where, when you're with your, you know, group of seals or whatever spec ops group that you're in, you know, you're what, how you talk every day and what you do every day, you know, is extraordinary compared to groups outside of that. 
So you talking about them outside of that group, people will say, what's he, was he bragging like that? You know, where in, in this group, it may not be that big a deal that you just ran five miles and did, you know, two mile ocean swim and jumped out of planes. And, you know, it's, it's just different conversations that can be viewed as arrogant outside of those groups. So, um, but yeah, it's a cross section of society. You, you have a little bit of everybody. I recall being in the military and hearing the story. Maybe you could fact check it or not, but uh, of a Navy SEAL getting pulled over for a DUI. And I just remember the quote being, he's like, all right, you, we got to take you in, son. And then the SEAL goes like, but, but I'm a SEAL. I'm a SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it was through Buds yet or something, <laughs> but uh, I don't think it worked out for him. <laughs> no, that's pr probably not the thing you want to do. Um, <laughs> at all um yeah that's pretty yeah. bad pretty bad yeah. i can see that happening though i mean I, I always flash my military id with my regular id you know when i got pulled oh, yeah. over and hope that would help <laughs> you know but i never played the seal card you know yeah, yeah. yeah. getting out of tickets <laughs> yeah yeah I, I wasn't pretty enough to get out of tickets so it's just, yeah i didn't even try you know just like Give it to me. So let me ask you guys a question yeah. um, for the world of search and rescue swimmers or helicopter rescue swimmers. What, what is the hardest part of that journey going through that training? I mean, I, it can be different for some, maybe different type of athletes yeah. have different issues. But for on the most part, what is the biggest issue that gets rescue swimmers? Yeah. So in swimmer school, there's two, I, I would say like two choke points basically. So the first one is just that first like shock factor of the first few weeks of rest of summer school. It's just a lot of PT underwater work, stuff like that, water confidence. So that'll knock out a lot of times, like half the class, you know, maybe a third to half the class. And then you can generally breeze through. It's not breeze through, but it's just like grind out another seven to eight weeks and you get to the simulated rescues. So you'll have simulated survivors who are super aggressive, mm. just trying to choke you. And, and you're having to go through all your, uh, your different tactics to get them off you and then to get them in a basket or get them in the helicopter somehow. And then they, they eventually just make them super complex. These scenarios with like, you know, like four to six survivors, that's kind of where the rest of the people kind of fall off. So I would okay. say from my perspective, that's the hardest part. What would you say Vince? Well, one thing I've often shared on this podcast is there's always that quote of 80% mental, 20% physical. And I've always said, that's just something that people that have the luxury of having been prepared physically can say. At that point, it does become mostly mental because their physical is accounted for. And in my case, it seems like the phenomenal people that trained me before going to rescue swimmer school did a good job where in rescue swimmer school physically, I was kind of coping and doing all right. That said, as far as my my biggest challenge was, yeah, that this one man test where you're dealing with a combative survivor, non-compliant survivor. And I recall, you know, you do these three practice drills and the first time your adrenaline is going, you're super excited. You're like, oh my God, this is the one, this is the one everyone's going to fail out on. This is the one that's going to get me. Oh God. And you do it. And I recall it going fairly well. And the instructors give me like good compliments. Second time going good good enough where they were like you would pass but this is what you need to correct third time again these are practices third time they said you crushed it just do this in the test well the test comes for us and it's right before christmas and i recall getting in the pool and i, I didn't have i no longer had that like the adrenaline rush i no, no longer had 
that that excitement that like that grit so when i got to like that struggle that where they really challenged me i no longer had like that uh you know like the the getting it and i recall thinking of quitting and and at one point i get because it's uh, the wave pools going and i remember there was kind of like a choke point where like the waves would combine and like there's a specific spot and if you guys want to reach if anyone wants to reach out i remember where, where it is in this pool there's like a spot <laughs> where you don't want to be in there, your buddy toe because you get sucked in and it's like the vortex of doom Oof. and i got sucked in it and i was just thinking like i'm so sick of this i'm like i've done this three times they said i did good why couldn't one of those count you know and uh <laughs> and we're starting to like we're starting to go under i'm, I'm buddy toeing, but now we're underwater and i'm like i'm running out of breath my legs are not operating anymore and i just recall thinking this is right before christmas and i recall thinking oh man i can't go to christmas break having failed this and i just i think I, it was like jingle bells it just started <laughs> playing in my head just jingle bells jingle bell and i jingle bell my survivor into that basket barely but i recall that being a big almost quitting or at least quitting on that test because i was spent trying yeah it's nice to go home for christmas having accomplished one of the toughest events in your training. Like for me, yeah. it was pool comp was like a week before Christmas in, in our class. And uh, that was a big deal because that's kind of like underwater wrestling on scuba. And it's just a series of procedures that you have to follow to get out of this situation. And uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, any time that I've been involved in underwater events or <clears throat> surface rescues that were real you know yeah they were panicky a little bit but as soon as you grab them they actually calmed down a little bit i was like I, i've never seen anybody like try to dunk me underwater <laughs> you know that, that yeah. was, i was like you instructors were sadistic because you yeah. know, nobody's swimming me to the bottom of the pool when they're panicking trying to get rescued <clears throat> that, that was the yeah. thing and the instructors ex tell you hey communicate <clears throat> with your survivor and and instruct them and guide them, right? And what was really frustrating to me in those challenging tests was I would, I would communicate, hey, relax your body. Could you, could you tilt your pelvis upwards? And instead, these instructors are like full on sitting like scorpion mode with their toes pointing up to the sky, like almost on their heads, like, like resting on me, doing yoga poses on my hip. And I'm just like, you're not, this is not realistic. I'm just, can you just chill? <laughs> yeah, um, it was a little aggressive for a, a, a panic victim, but you yeah. know what? It, it's, it's the part that I think makes these schools. It's what makes these schools. I mean, the, these schools are tough. And, you know, we all have those moments to share about the instructor that almost drowns us as we're trying to learn how to rescue him. And it's, I think that's just part of the part of the journey and uh, part of making you realize that, you know, we really are playing with Mother Nature when she wants us to play with her. She will win every time she wants to win. And whenever we come out with a victory, it's because she let us come out yeah. with a victory. And that, that's the, I think if there's, if there's an answer for why do the instructors do this to you, it's because mother nature is relentless and it's, it's because she lets us play in there and she lets us win that we actually come out successful.
you know, in a real life event. One thing, just sorry, telling my story there before is I, I recall actually my senior chief in Hawaii, he did go through buds. He, he made it through most of it. And then I, I don't recall, he didn't, he didn't graduate. Uh, but one thing he told me that caused like quite the predicament was I think they got caught. Some of the guys, they were sick of the chafing, the sand chafing. So what they did is they, they bought rash guards and they, they put them on. And then somehow they got caught because, oh. <laughs> the, yeah, the rash guard was like a brilliant idea. Like the sand wasn't really it was tight to their skin. So like the sand wasn't really getting there. Um, and I remember the, what he was describing as far as like the, the post PT of that was like pretty severe. But it, yeah, it, I mean, it's you, fun you, of these tricks. You get caught. Um, you get caught bucking the system. They, they will make you pay for sure. Cody, if you recall the Navy SEAL instructor. So from Navy Rescue Swimmer School, he he was an instructor, and we asked him, "What's like your pet peeve that you see in a candidate?" And he goes, "You saw the hate in his face," and he just goes, "People that think they can bypass the system, <laughs> that can that can trick the system." And you saw yeah. the hate, the anger, and I was like, "Oh, You're so mad!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's like an aspect to that, like if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, you know. And there's a little, I mean. For some things, but yeah, I mean, sure. I guess on big things like that, probably shouldn't do that. Probably oh just yeah, chafe. just chafe, just chafe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steve, sim- similar to you, we have like a lot of programs, and one that we ended up not like d- like going forward with because I think that would be a bad idea. But an idea I had was you, I could straight up make a program on like if you ain't cheating, you're trying. Here are your cheat codes. <laughs> 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 and, uh, yeah, that includes such things as. I probably shouldn't. I'm just gonna say it anyway. But don't like, say it. But I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say it. Nice. It's just like if you're if you're doing your flutter kicks, you know, you can yeah. like a classic trick is creating a fist like underneath your butt. That thing oh, absolutely. is a lifesaver. Yeah. You know, yeah, and like absolutely. It's a thing. Often the instructors didn't. I think they they're probably onto it at this point. There's no way. But you know, a lot of times, like if they walk away, you make a fist. They come over, you make a flat fist, flat fist, flat. <laughs> yeah, you know, luckily we didn't really have that rule. You know, going on the grinder, it didn't really matter. You could put your fists like this side by side, which was very helpful. You go flat. It, it was pretty easy to, to go back and forth if you needed to. But um, there was really no rule on that. Now, every now and then they would say, get your hands away from you have to put it over your head oh, or rough. something and do flutter kicks. And that just pure sucks. But yeah. uh, but you're right. That, that That's always that's the winner right there. Put the uh, <laughs> fist underneath the butt for sure. Yeah, but so many come to mind. Like, and and this one's not per se cheating, but if you're not doing a PT test where you're they're really gauging the form on the push-ups, but readjusting that push-up. In general, I like it's. I think it's a fair consensus that when you're doing your push-ups, you want to be doing utilizing your larger muscles, so your lats and of course your chest. Then come the delts, um, keeping your shoulders in the socket. But as you get exhausted, like if you want to just you know you got to keep cranking out sneaking out a couple then you can adjust those elbows a little bit i mean it turn it into a little bit more of a tricep push-ups or, sure. or angling them out which could be a little more prone to injury but then at that point you're yeah it's more of a lat or a, or a deltoid thing so just yeah. relieving those muscles as they get exhausted 100 that well last the thir- yeah the last 30 seconds of any exercise in a two-minute test is a quest for finding other ways to get those reps you know it might be you know, your, your grip goes wider or maybe uh, 
you know, your grip comes in a little closer on the pull up or something, you know, or, or maybe you're, you're here's, here's one I used to do on sit-ups is if, you know, your butt was like, you know, maybe a foot and a half away from maybe a foot, foot and a half away from your heels when you're in that sit-up position. And then that last 30 seconds, just slide your butt back a couple of inches. So now you have to come up higher, but it changes the angle in your hips. And you, you instead of failing and getting zero those last 30 seconds, you might be able to squeeze out another 10 or 15 just with a slightly different angle on your on your hips. And once again, you can call them cheat codes. You could call them strategies. You know, I, I prefer to call them strategies when it comes to uh, PT testing because there's no rule against it. Um, so therefore, it's not a cheat code, right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I like it. I like it. Stu, where can people find you? And what kind of programs are you excited about right now that you're... Yeah, well, I'm at stusmithfitness.com. Um, and it's basically 25 years of me writing and working, working out and writing about it, whether it's articles that I try to write probably about two or three a week and then uh new programs i'm always coming up with i train kids locally here for free um anybody who wants to serve can train with me military law enforcement firefighters we get all types and where's this too uh here in Severna park maryland just just outside of annapolis but you can find our schedule on heroesoftomorrow.org once again it's free workouts it gives me ideas to write about everybody wins Kids get free workouts. I get test subjects to test out new products and new ideas of training, how to work around aches and pains and injuries or anything like that. But I would say last winter, we came up with a great system. And it, it during the winter, we typically lift anyway, lift a little more, run a little less, do a little more swimming um, just for the non-impact aerobic. Uh, pull back a little bit from the impact and high reps. So we'd add some weight, do a little more, fewer reps, but try to build some strength. And we did a cycle last winter and it was uh, three weeks of strength training. And instead of taking that deload week, which we had done previous years, we turned the deload week into a calisthenics and cardio week. So three weeks of strength, one week of calisthenics and cardio and we did that all through the winter for 16 weeks so three three on one off three on one off and i was shocked at how well it went in fact i have this book here called increase strength and crush the pst pass test that's our winter lift cycle from last year that has that three to one block periodization in it and there were not only people getting stronger with like body weight bench and deadlifts and you know those type of movements um, better grip with farmer walks and things like that. Um, but they were also getting faster on their timed run events. And this was shorter timed runs. So like the mile and a half or two miles, if you're an army guy. And typically we just try to maintain in the winter versus try to improve those events. But I was shocked that we were actually able to not only get stronger, in those three weeks and take that one week of lifting off to kind of improve the strength. When guys came back into the lift cycle, they were a little bit stronger, even though we did calisthenics and cardio on that fourth week, you know, to help them maintain and even improve on some of their numbers, whether it was a strength number with pull-ups or it was a running or swimming number um, time. 
that uh, they were trying to improve on. So that that was something that I really researched and tested out and then saw the, the results of those tests to a point of where I'm not ever going to do a winter lift cycle differently. Right. I mean, unless, unless something, a new idea comes, but that, that is, we're in our second year of doing that uh, winter lift cycle. And I've been doing winter lift cycles for over 20 years. I just never did it that way. And all I did was adjust the deload week, made the deload week a little less, you know, mobility and lightweight stuff and made it more calisthenics and cardio. And that, that, that made all the difference. I was, I was shocked. And with the cardio, are you doing like, is it mainly aerobic? Or are you doing anaerobic sprints and stuff also? Um, it's a little bit of both. Um, yeah. Some sprints, but mainly it's goal pace. So if you're trying to run a nine minute mile and a half, your quarter miles are going to be at a minute and a half. Your half miles are going to be at three minutes. So yep. it's just trying to memorize that pace. So it's easier, you know, you can do it at a lower heart rate versus it being a gut check for you. And right. uh, that, that made a big difference versus trying to run 50 miles a week all year and just falling apart, you know, deload that running and just, you know, make, maybe make it 15 miles a week, but they're fast miles. There's no long, slow distance in that cycle. I mean, that's just a waste of time. You, yeah. know, you want to get strong and you want to get fast. And that's, that's kind of what that 16 week winter lift cycle is all about. Perfect. Stu Smith. Thanks so much. Thank you guys. I've really enjoyed this. I love to have you guys on mine and maybe we can, uh, we do a tactical fitness report or I have another segment on my podcast. I call it two through and after, and it's kind of your journey of who you were before you were in the military and who you are, you know, going through the training and then who you are after, you know, and what are you doing now and things like that. I mean, yeah. it, it turns into a commercial for everybody that's on it, you know, on the back end because they're involved in some, you know, business or, you know, some, some way of helping veterans or things like that. But yeah, love to have you guys on either one of those podcasts. Sounds good. Sounds great. Yeah. We, yeah. I mean, the truth of a podcast is partly to educate yourself. It's to educate the audience, but it's also, yeah, it's a good marketing platform for, for both to, for people to discover you on like, hopefully our, our people, if they hadn't, I'm sure they've heard of Stu Smith. Stu Smith's huge. He's like, yeah. like, oh, thank you. like yeah. um, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, if they haven't now they found you and vice versa, if we come on yours for sure. Um, it's a, it's just a, it's a great thing to do for, for both parties. So yeah, absolutely. We're very interested. Well, thank you. I've learned that there's always some new 18 year old kid who starts this journey that has no idea who I am. So uh, yes, you know, the more I stay relevant <laughs> and, you know, out there and discussing these things, people hear me. So, yeah, absolutely. And the world is big. This fitness world, even the military fitness world is huge and we all can play in it. You know, it's I think I think that we are we are better together versus trying to you know compete and bring each other down for sure. Agreed. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I agree. yeah, we'll be in touch. Absolutely. So All right. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Stu Smith. We covered a lot of stuff on that podcast. I was kind of a fanboy, you know, I liked Stu Smith. He was kind of the inspiration behind Restroom Mindset originally. So it was cool to talk to him, fanboy out and get some good conversation going. Um, I think we established that rescue swimmer school is harder than buds. Yeah, that's right, official. It's not even a question. I don't even know why I asked that. <laughs> yeah, that's it is interesting too. seeing somebody that you you've followed or, and that's been kind of a mentor. 
your whole life and seeing them. I mean, we didn't see them in person, so that would certainly be different. But it does make you think, like, I have seen some rock climbers that are, you know, the, I've seen Tommy Caldwell, like the professional rock climbers. And I wouldn't say I'm totally stargazed, but there's a bit of, oh, my God, it's, like, weird. You know, you're like, whoa. Yeah. And, like, now I see you as a real person in real life. And it's uh, it's exciting. Yeah. Treat him like a person. I mean, like, don't be a fan. Like, don't signing autographs is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, it's a natural human feeling of of when you you see those people you get excited totally. thanks Stu smith well, speaking of getting excited i'm excited for black friday yeah 50 percent off is what we're offering at the rescue swimmer mindset.com that's all our programs 50 percent off if you've been holding off on our higher budget uh, courses which are the hold your breath course the uh perfect form so we're really breaking down how to swim efficiently breaking down the form whether that be in the ocean as a military operator or in the pool in your training in say a military setting or just in general perfect your swimming abilities uh, we're really breaking down the form from your toes to your fingertips everything and your elbows how to enter the water cody went into the uh, egg beater we go into treading we go into underwater technique all that yeah so that's those programs we have the mile and a half program we got a lot of programs at the rescue swimmer mindset.com a lot of programs and a new program yes new program coming out train like a rescue swimmer also will be available that's all i got and good show uh, yeah you don't have to be a rescue swimmer to train like one so that's what this program is going to be all about excellent till the next one peace sayonara that's the new checkout sayonara <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs>